coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a COVID-19 vaccine trial for kids gets underway in Syracuse starting tomorrow. We want to make sure they tolerate it as well, if not better, than the adults and the teenagers did. And if they don't, we'll stop escalating the dose and choose one of the lower doses. A growing number of kidney transplants come from living donors. There is no age requirement. Anybody can be a living donor, but we have to work them up and make sure, number one, they're compatible with that recipient. And a child psychologist talks about the impact of the pandemic on children. When so many things all changed all at the same time for kids and families, it really became too much at once. All that and a visit from the Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore how living donor kidney transplants are helping people in need. Then, a child psychologist talks about the impact of the pandemic on children. But first, a COVID-19 vaccine trial for kids gets underway in Syracuse starting tomorrow. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. More than 300 adult Central New Yorkers enrolled in a COVID-19 vaccine trial at Upstate last July. Then in December, 12 to 15-year-olds were able to join a similar vaccine trial. Now, Upstate will invite children from 6 months to 11 years old to participate in a COVID-19 vaccine trial. I'm speaking with the principal investigator, Dr. Joe Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University, and he specializes in pediatric infectious disease at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Domikowski. Thanks, Amber. It's nice to be here. So tell us about this trial. How does how is it meant to work? Yes, so this is an age extension, if you will, going to the lower um, limit of six months of age. Uh, we're going to be looking for children between six months and 11 years to um, join the Pfizer clinical vaccine trial for COVID. So it'll be the Pfizer vaccine that's used? For this particular study, yes. I know Moderna is um, is doing a similar study. There may be other opportunities in our community for folks to seek that out as well. Now, will it work the same way where uh, where there's two doses required for, for kids as well as adults? Uh, yes, it's a two-dose series, three weeks apart. Uh, there's a couple of blood tests that we uh, ask the folks to undergo so that we can look at um, the immune response to the vaccine and the baseline before we get started. Uh, but we're not quite sure what the dose is, so we have to start with a dose selection series of studies. So dose selection, is that where you determine how much for each particular child that's in the, because would it be different for a six-month-old versus an 11-year-old? Uh, we don't know. Um, there are very few examples where that's the case, but the FDA has asked uh, Pfizer to investigate that possibility. For example, the adult dose, uh, well, really down to age 12 now, is 30 micrograms. We know that to be the case. So we're going to divide the children into two um, to younger groups to try to figure out what the right dose is for them. So since you're concentrating on the dose, you already know that this is a safe vaccine. Well, the dose, um, selecting the dose is designed to determine whether or not the vaccine has the same reaction profile as the adults and the uh, teenagers did. So we're going to start with a lower dose and then gradually work our way up. If the kids tolerate it, with very small numbers, there's 16 per group, but we want to make sure they tolerate it as well, if not better, than the adults and the teenagers did. And if they don't, we'll stop escalating the dose and choose one of the lower doses. So how much of a commitment do you need from someone to participate? What's actually going to be asked of the people who volunteer? Yep, for this first part, we have the two vaccine visits, three weeks apart. 
followed by an added visit seven days after the second dose so we can look at the uh, neutralizing antibody levels in the blood. And then we follow those kids that got the different doses uh, for, for two full years. If they get sick, we'll, we ask them to do nasal swabs to check to see if they might have um, been exposed to and infected with COVID. So everyone in this study would receive the actual vaccine? You're not testing it against a something different? In this first phase, which will go for April and May, um, everyone gets vaccinated. It's just, it may be a different dose. Um, starting in June, we're expecting to know what dose to use for each age group, and then we'll open up to all six months through 11, up to age 12 years, um, for a placebo-controlled trial where for every two that get vaccinated, one will get a placebo. Now, even in that trial, we will unblind, like they say, unblind the, the um, recipients at six months afterwards, those that got placebo will still get vaccines. So everyone involved will eventually be vaccinated. So aside from age, what are you looking for? Um, is there anything that would disqualify someone from participating? Yep, they need to be generally healthy. Um, they can have underlying medical conditions as long as those conditions are, are stable. Um, for the phase one, the dose selection part of the trials for April and May, if they've had a documented infection with COVID already, they're not eligible, but they could become eligible in June when we open up for the placebo-controlled trial. How many kids do you need for this first phase? The uh, overall trial is looking at 3,000 children. Locally, we're hoping to enroll close to 200 or so, similar to the numbers that were enrolled in the adult trial. Now, what do you tell parents in terms of any of the, are there risks for participating? Certainly, um, there's always risk when we ask folks to join a clinical trial, a clinical vaccine trial like this one, for example. Uh, but what we know about the safety and efficacy of this vaccine already in the age group 12 and higher tells us that it's a, a good time to start looking younger and younger. And that's really the, the rationale for doing the dose selection is we want to make sure that this vaccine isn't going to cause more reactions or more side effects in younger children. So we'll start with a lower dose and then if they tolerate it, we'll, we'll work up um, additional groups in the same ages to determine what the best dose is for them so they can achieve the maximum efficacy of the vaccine. Well, let's let people know how they can learn more or if they're interested in enrolling. Uh, the phone number to call would be 315-706-5636 or they can send an email to you, d-o-m-a-c-h-o-j at upstate.edu. Yes, either of those will work beautifully. The phone number that you, you gave is our dedicated research number. And if someone doesn't answer, they will respond to your text or your voice message uh, within the same day. Now, how long will it take to get results from this? We expect to know what the dose selection by age group, uh, one dose for the six month to two year olds, second dose for the, the two to five year olds. And then we think we're we're pretty good already with the five to 12 year olds. There's one more week left of that portion of the trial that we aren't involved with. Um, so the phase three, the big study, placebo controlled study that starts in June will run for two years, but we expect to have preliminary uh, efficacy information even out at six months, just as we did for the adult trial. You know, we learned how well that vaccine was working very, very quickly. So, will it be more than two years before there's a vaccine on the market for all kids, or do you will that process be accelerated in some way? Well, I'm I'm thinking that because we have so much data already for the 12 to 17 year olds from the um, from the adult study extension, the adult study actually allowed teenagers to be enrolled, as you mentioned. Uh, we have so much information from that study that Pfizer changed the way this new study is designed to limit the age, the upper age to 11 years instead of going all the way up until 18 years. Um, I'm thinking that because they're so confident with that group that they are um, exploring um, 
or requesting permission from the FDA for emergency use authorization, just as we're doing currently for the 16 and higher for the Pfizer vaccine. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joe Domikowski about a COVID-19 vaccine trial for kids from age six months to 11 years. It's getting underway, and I want to remind you, if you're interested in enrolling your child, the number to call is 315-706-5636, or you can email Dr. Domikowski at domachoj at upstate.edu. So you mentioned, and you're the... uh, Uh, investigator for the trial, the study that looked at 12 to 15 year olds. What can you tell us about what you found with that group so far? Um, Yes, so we don't yet have efficacy data because the enrollment was completed just in January um, and it filled so fast. Uh, That was 3000 kids um, internationally from all of the sites. We were able to enroll just under 100 um, 12 to 17 year olds total here. And the first look at the safety information showed us very clearly that the adult dose in that in those teenagers from well from 12 to 17 um, had a reaction profile that was very similar to adults. Certainly not any more reactogenic than than what we were described for the adults. We don't yet have efficacy information because it's only been a couple of months. We have to wait till six months, which will happen sometime in the middle of June, and then we'll have some preliminary um, efficacy information. But what we do have is some antibody results, and it looks like the, the vaccine certainly is as expected as immunogenic, meaning antibody titers are just as good as adults, and maybe even a little bit better. And that's not unheard of for kids. You know, the younger we are, the generally the better we respond to certain vaccines. Is it typical for vaccines being developed to be tried in adults first before they're tried in kids? Uh, Typically, the very first in-human studies are done in healthy, um, pretty much younger adults without any underlying medical conditions, just to demonstrate that the vaccine formulation itself is safe. Now, in this new study that's starting, is the six-month cutoff in this trial, is that an arbitrary cutoff or is there a specific reason you wouldn't want to vaccinate like a, a two or three month old? So the certainly two and three month olds are getting infected and we've even seen a few of them hospitalized. For the vast majority, they don't get very sick, but some of them do suffer severe illness and a couple of them have, have even died from COVID. So eventually it does make sense to look at younger children, even younger than six months of age. The six month cutoff really was because the kids between birth and six months of age um, have a fairly busy immunization schedule already. And it would be difficult to parse out the side effect profile from the vaccines that they're getting for general care already as a standard versus introducing this um, new vaccine two doses, three weeks apart it's almost impossible to find a period of time when they're not getting other vaccines during that time frame. So it's just a matter of logistics. Um, the example of another vaccine that we use routinely starting at six months, but not younger is influenza vaccine. Right. Now, earlier in the pandemic, we heard about multi-system inflammatory disease um, that was being seen in some children with COVID. Is that still an issue? It sure is. Um, in fact, here, uh, the last couple of times I was on clinical duty in the hospital to see the inpatient um, consults, that was by and far the most common reason why I was asked to consult on a hospitalized child. And there were lots of them. Some of them were mildly ill, some moderately ill, and we did have a couple of them here in Syracuse that were severely ill with that inflammatory process. Is that connected to, we're also hearing now about new variants of coronavirus that are supposedly more infectious. Are those affecting kids differently? We don't have much information yet about the the UK variant, the Brazilian variant, or the South African variant um, as far as their role in in children or whether or not they're either more infectious or um, more aggressive when they do infect kids. 
um, because as, as things go epidemiologically, we learn what happens in adults first, and then we start looking much more carefully in the kids. Um, since many kids are minimally symptomatic or not symptomatic at all, they often don't have the same detailed type of testing that adults have. Now, early on, it seemed like kids may have been asymptomatic carriers, but they weren't as likely to get seriously ill. Are, is that changing? It, it's not changing. In fact, uh, children by far um, tolerate this infection better than any other age group, but we can't predict which ones are going to be prone to develop complications or severe illness. We do know if kids have asthma or underlying respiratory problems at baseline, just like adults do, that they are likely to end up in the hospital with a wheezing problem from their coronavirus infection. But still, we're seeing generally healthy kids, no underlying risk factors get admitted to the hospital with uh, problems from this infection or problems after the infection, like the multisystem inflammatory illness that you mentioned. Now, the pandemic may have caused some parents to skip bringing kids for the well child appointments. So I wonder if the pediatric infectious disease doctors, if you're seeing any upticks in vaccine preventable illnesses from the kids who are missing those early childhood vaccinations? Um, fortunately not, and that's partly reflected by our New York State rates of immunizations in the younger children group compared to the national data. Nationally, you're right, the, the rates of vaccination for, for routine pediatric vaccinations in kids has dropped uh, substantially. In New York State, we did see a little bit of a slump, but it wasn't nearly as um, impressive as what was going on nationwide. Um, the other issue is with social distancing, it, it, we are all much more likely, less likely to be exposed to and infected with these vac other vaccine preventable illness, including influenza. If you look at the influenza data for this flu season, there was almost none. Uh, I don't think we had a single hospitalization from flu in a pediatric patient this flu season. Do you foresee if the COVID-19 vaccine, vaccine is uh, approved, assuming it's approved for children, do you foresee that becoming another standard childhood vaccination? I think time will really tell. The, the first, there's so many other questions that we have to answer first. For example, how, how is the durability of the protection afforded by vaccines? And is it different in adults and children? Will kids, um, be provided a longer lasting immune protective effect compared to adults. Does the vaccine work better than the natural infection? Uh, we know that the natural infection for many coronaviruses that infect people, some of them only cause very, very mild disease, but the protection afforded doesn't last very long. Is this gonna be in that same um, situation where we have waning immunity just after a year or so in the second season, we get re-exposed. We may we may be infected again, despite being vaccinated or already have, having been ill. So the um, vaccine itself may provide higher level of immunity and a more durable immunity than even natural infection when it's severe. Well, I want to thank Dr. Joe Domikowski for telling us about the vaccine trial he's leading on children from six months to 11 years. And I want to remind listeners how to learn more about signing up. You can call 315-706-5636 or send an email to domachoj at upstate.edu. Dr. Domikowski is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital and a professor in pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay with HealthLink on Air for a look at kidney transplants from living donors, next. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Kidney transplants from living donors have helped ease a shortage of donor kidneys across the nation and here in central New York. With me to talk about living donor kidney transplants is Dr. Reza Saidi. He's an associate professor of surgery at Upstate and the chief of transplant services. 
Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Saidi. Thank you, Amber. Glad to be here. Upstate University Hospital has done more than 1,000 deceased donor transplants, but also some 400 transplants from living donors. Are these transplants mostly among family members or people who know each other? I think uh, it's interesting. The majority, about 60% of the uh, living donors that we do are living unrelated. And these are the uh, patient uh, among uh, uh, people that knew each other from work or from school. They come donor, and about the other forty percent, I would say, they are family member, and uh, that they come forward to donate. And then a small percentage that that donors are altruistic. They just come forward to donate to basically whoever is on our list wait, waiting kidney transplant. So they call that the non-directed donation when it's altruistic and you don't have a person in mind, but you want to donate your kidney to somebody? That's correct. Okay. And then among family members, is it usually, it's blood-related family? Or are you talking yes. about like spouses that, that aren't blood-related, but are family? Well, spouses uh, too, but the majority of them are just blood-related. I see. Well, who can be a living donor? Are there age requirements? No, there is no age requirement. You know, anybody can be a living donor, but uh, we have to work them up and make sure, number one, they're compatible with that recipient. Uh, the main thing is uh, blood type and also make sure they uh, have a normal kidney function, they're healthy, they don't have comorbidities uh, that they put them in higher risk that, that they, they might develop uh, kidney disease themselves. But anybody can be a donor, but it's a process and, uh, and that they have to go through and make sure they're a good match for their intended recipient. So they have to be in general good health. What about someone with a cancer history? Are they able to donate? Yeah, if it's a remote cancer history, they can donate. And also it depends on the type of cancer and what, this, what was the stage of the cancer. For example, somebody have a stage one colon cancer and have surgery, usually that consider cure and they can donate or somebody have breast cancer early stage at treatment that consider cure they can donate but if somebody have active cancer they cannot donate because they always risk of their cancer cells can spread to a recipient and because the after transplant surgery the recipient are heavily immunosuppressed to prevent the rejection those cancers can grow and that's happened that's had happened in the past that uh, the transmission can happen. That's why we do extensive uh, also cancer screening on the donors to pick up any potential cancer. Now, what if a person who's willing to donate has a loved one in their family who has kidney disease? Would you advise that person to wait and save their kidney just in case that relative might need it later on? Actually, it, it, that's a good question. There are a uh, couple options actually. The one thing that we do here actually at Upstate, we can give them voucher. They said if you donate your kidney today, and for example, your loved one in 10 years needs a kidney transplant, you can use that person can use that voucher to get kidney transplanted down the road. So it, it moves them up on the waiting list? Yes. Oh, somebody, I see. Yes, yes. Somebody uh, have donated their kidney. And they, they have the, that voucher, they move up on the uh, donor list to get transplanted. That's or you can go on one of these uh, per donation swaps. Now, if a person is trying to donate to a particular person, say a spouse or a coworker, but tests show that they would not be a good match, are there other options? Yeah, there are a couple of options. The best option is this uh, paired donation. What is a paired donation? Paired donation means that when your, your donor is not compatible with you and somebody else donor is not compatible with that person, but that person donor is maybe is compatible with you, we can swap the donors, basically. Person, person A donor donates to person B and person B donate, donor donates to person A. They can swap the donors. Then there's a national program for that. They can go on that program and sometimes there are 80 of these chains going at the same time, and 80 patients get transplanted. That's one option. The other option uh, that also we uh, try to offer here called desensitization. 
And if it's something that, uh, for example, they have a lot of antibody against that donor, you can remove that antibody and do a transplant. There are multiple options uh, in the case that uh, the donor, potential donor is not a match for recipient. So if I don't have, if I'm not a great match, you might be able to do something to make me a, a, a decent match, or I might be able to get into sort of a, a swapping uh, position where I can swap my kidney for, to someone who has a person who will give their kidney to the person I'm trying to match with. That's it gets correct. a little confusing. <laughs> That's correct, but I want to make sure that uh, our listeners understand there are a lot, if their donor their donor is not a match. There's a lot of options that we can offer. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Reza Saidi, the Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. Now, let me ask you from the surgeon's point of view, how do the uh, operations differ when it's a living donor versus a deceased donor? Is there a difference in how you do the operations? Yeah, there's a very different. You know, the, the good thing about living donor is a scheduled surgery. And basically, we coordinate that uh, as soon as the kidney comes out of the donor, we usually have the recipient re ready that the kidney goes in the recipient. That, that's why the time that the kidney is out of body, we let the blood flow is very small in a matter of minutes. And that's why this kidney works right away. And uh, the success of living donation is always much higher than the disease donor. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, but the surgery is a little bit more challenging because the vessels are usually a little bit smaller than, than the kidney that we get from cadaver or a disease donor. And the surgery is more tedious, but the success is much higher in living donor because, as I said, the kidney is out of body, and usually this kidney works right away. And uh, in long term, these kidneys last much longer than the kidney come from a disease donor. So, if you had your choice, a living donor is going to be the better option for someone absolutely, who needs a kidney. Absolutely. Uh, I always tell my patient, if you have a living donor, that's your best option. Because the other good thing about living donor, they don't have to wait. Because for disease donor, currently there are about 120,000 patients on the wait list to receive a disease donor transplant. And uh, average wait time in this country is about five, six years to receive those. And waiting that long, sometimes people become too sick that they're not candidate for transplant anymore. I and see. That's why the living donor is always the best option. And if you've carefully selected a donor who's healthy, uh, they're able to live with a single kidney after yes, they've donated? Yeah, actually, that's a very good question. And uh, a lot of my donors ask me or my, my patient asked me if somebody or my spouse or my uh, children donate to me, what's going to happen? And this has studied, been studied for the past, I would say, 60 years. And people who donate their kidney, are, they're not at increased risk to develop high blood pressure or diabetes or cancer compared to normal population. That's good to know. Let me ask you, during a living donor transplant, is there one surgeon for the donor and one surgeon for the recipient, or do yes. you work together? Yeah. How does that yeah, it, we have two separate teams, basically. One surgeon completely devotes his time to uh, uh, donor surgery, and another surgeon devotes his time completely at, to the recipient surgery. We have two different teams. But we coordinate that that the, the time that the kid is out of body is small, short, and as soon as the kidney come out, we make sure that the recipient is ready that they can receive the kid. How long does each operation usually take? And then the donor surgery takes about, I would say, about two, three hours. And we do it laparoscopically with small holes. And the recipient surgery takes also, I would say, a little bit longer, maybe three, four hours to do the recipient surgery. Now, does the recipient also, uh, is that done laparoscopically with small incisions or not? No, actually, currently we're doing open. But we also in progress uh, process to develop, a call, we call it a robotic kidney transplant. That, that done laparoscopically with the help of robot. That has, I think it's a, a new innovative thing to do kidney transplant. And we also in process to implement that program uh, here at Upstate. Well, what do you say to the recipient about what to expect from the surgery and recovery? How soon does the new kidney start functioning, for instance? It all depends. It depends. As I said, for example, in the case of living donor, 
it 99% of time works right away. But in case of disease donor, because this kidney is being out of body, if usually for a couple of hours, the kidney might not work right away. But majority of this kidney work in couple, I would say couple hours or couple days after transplant. And depends on how soon the kidney works, that's gonna dictate the recovery of the recipient. If the kidney works in a couple of hours or a day or so, usually this patient stay in the hospital for four, four or five days and then go home. And usually the full recovery is about three, four weeks after transplant. And best case scenario, how long will that new kidney last? Will that- it Depends on the quality of the kidney. If it's from living donor, usually 50% of these kidneys go beyond 15 years. Of course, mm-hmm. half of these kidneys 50 years. I mean, by, by 15 years, it's still half of them are still working. If it's diseased donor, in average, I would say it's 10 years. But again, it depends on quality of the kidney. This kidney came from a young person, an old person. But over years, we, can, we have accumulated a lot of data. And based on all that data points, we can tell that how long each specific kidney is going to last for the patient. So if someone had a kidney transplant once, could they later on 10 or 15 or 20 years from then be a candidate for another transplant in the future? Yes. If the kidney fails, usually we can do retransplant on that patient. And I've seen patients that actually have, uh, I think the highest I've done is the fifth kidney transplant in a patient. Because now their technique is better, the medication are better, the kidney lasts longer, people live longer. About 20, 30% of our cases that we do are all retransplants. Interesting. Well, I know you've published some research about the shortage of organs in America. Do you have suggestions for how to increase the number of kidney donors? You know, uh, as I said, organ shortage is a uh, major problem uh, for uh, progress in transplant. And there are different, uh, wide variety actually approaches uh, proposed one is basically make sure people understand the concept of donation basically after they die. There are two types of donors that we get uh, kidneys or other organs. One is the donors who are brain dead. For example, somebody in a car accident or have a head bleeding or have a stroke and they became brain dead, they can donate. It's called donation of a brain death that been around for many, many times, years, I would say, or decades. There's also another thing that we do now called donation after cardiac death. These are the patients who are not brain dead, but they have significant damage to their brain that there's, uh, they would not have a reasonable quality of life, even if they live. And based on patient previous wishes or their family, they decide to, they want to be drug care and they want to they don't want to prolong the patient's suffering. And usually if that, because they're not brain dead, they cannot recover their organs under the, unless their heart and lung stops. And what happened when the family decides to withdraw care, if that donor dies, usually within one hour, we can rush to the OR and remove their organ. That's called donation after cardiac death. That's one proposal to increase donation. The other thing we also, uh, uh, accept donors from a high-risk patient, for example, patient with hepatitis, because now hepatitis mm-hmm. B and C is easily treatable. And if the donor has hepatitis, we can accept those kidneys uh, to increase donation. The other thing is basically increase awareness about the donation, that people understand that, be educated that they, if they can donate their kidney to a loved one, or even uh, a strange person, they're not at increased risk of kidney disease or high blood pressure or uh, diabetes. But this, we have to do a lot of, I think, public education about donation. And uh, by that, we can increase the number of kidney transplant. It's interesting to know last year, despite even the COVID, the number of disease donation in this country went up. Interesting. We have to do a lot of education, the family and make sure the they understand the concept of brain death, uh, the concept of donation after cardiac death. And uh, as people said, uh, heaven doesn't need these organs. We do need them here. Well, this has been very informative.
Thank you to Dr. Reza Saidi. He's an Associate Professor of Surgery at Upstate and the Chief of Transplant Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, helping kids and adolescents during the pandemic. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many children of all ages and from all types of family situations are having a really rough time during the pandemic. I'm grateful to have a child psychologist from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital to talk about what's happening. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Ann Regan. Thanks. I'm glad to be here today. Well, last time we spoke was in the spring, and it was just several weeks into the pandemic, so a lot of time has passed, and the situation with our kids seems to have gotten worse. So not just in central New York, but throughout the nation, we're hearing about an increase in suicidal thinking among adolescents. What is to blame for this? Well, there's a lot of factors, as with many things. Uh, Essentially, you know, it's the perfect storm of events that occurred during the pandemic, You have the decreased socialization, increased isolation. You have complete disruption and change in everything that was predictable for kids and their families, you know, daily routines. You have increased anxiety of uncertainty um, as well as increased stress. So putting all of those things together, you're going to have increased negative thoughts, increased negative thinking. Um, fewer ways to cope and and manage with all of these things happening at the same time. Usually in life, when something negative happens, it's one bad thing, hopefully at a time, and we have those other things in life to kind of keep us constant. But when so many things all changed all at the same time for kids and families, it really became too much at once. And and as you mentioned, like with parents, I mean, parents are going through all of this too and sort of dealing with stuff that they're dealing with. And then they also have the kids to think about at the same time. It just, it, it seems like just an awful situation. It seems like a crisis within a crisis. So yeah. what advice do you have for parents? So there's always this conversation of, Do we tell kids what we're really feeling as parents? Do we keep it from them? What's going to be in their best interest? The idea of modeling our emotions and modeling how we work through adversity really is in everyone's best interest because parents can have open and honest conversations with their children and with their partners, um, as well as showing kids that it's okay to not know the answers to everything, but the idea of keeping solution focused and problem solving together. And when you have those conversations as parents and caregivers with kids, it's okay to not know all the answers as long as you're ending it with, but let's try this or let's work through it and see if this helps us feel better. It's ending it with some sense of a plan or like I said, a solution or working through the problems together, that still, you know, that instills the hope for the kids that, well, even if my mom or dad doesn't know the answer, you know, we'll figure it out and they're trying something. And that really can help um, with having that conversation and being open with kids. It's, it's nice for them sometimes to see a parent cry or a parent get upset and then model how do they work through that frustration. That's the important part, whether it's about a global pandemic or whether it's about something more minor that we might have felt was as stressful um, up until this all started. Do you think that a lot of this will be mitigated when the schools are fully open again? Will that take some of the pressure off? It'll take some of the pressure off, but with everything, it's a pendulum. So we went to this extreme of, you know, complete lockdown and everybody being isolated at home. Just because kids are back on a certain date doesn't mean everything's just going to be completely back to normal. There's still going to be an adjustment period for that pre-normalcy or back to normal time. Um, And so things aren't just going to improve overnight. 
And I think what this has highlighted is the cracks in various systems, whether it's healthcare systems, accessing mental health services, um, support systems, financial systems. It's, it's really exposed a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, and so it's gonna take a while to reassure kids and family systems that you know they have the supports that they're gonna need. So I'd like to say that if we pick a date and everybody's back in school and everybody's back in the office, um, that that's just going to be the day that everybody feels better, but we know that that is wishful thinking and instead it is going to take um, some time if we're being realistic about what that return to normalcy is going to be like. So in the meantime, what can parents do to help adolescents cope? Should we be relaxing house rules or should we be instilling more structure? I mean, what, what practical things can we do at home? So we know one of the things with managing anxiety and stress is keeping some forms of structure. It's just also not being too rigid. So again, we want to kind of be in the middle. We don't want to be on these, these extreme ends of the pendulum. So um, definitely keeping structure and keeping healthy expectations and expectations that kids can accomplish actually can reassure their abilities and make them feel good about themselves when they've been able to successfully complete a goal. So keeping those household chores that a kid can feel good about when they've done, or um, again, those, those aspects of structure where they can be successful at something that can actually help, you know, challenge and mitigate some of that stress and anxiety. Um, but keeping healthy, reasonable expectations and setting those boundaries um, definitely is, is helpful in managing the stress and the anxiety. So structure can certainly help with that as long as it's not something that is going to make a child feel as though this is another thing that I can't do or this is another thing that just adds um, to the overall pressure that they feel. So it's got to be something that benefits the family system in that regard. Well, one thing I think many of us have had during the pandemic is a lot of family togetherness. So how important is it to have alone time too? So with everything, it's about balance and proportion. So we have had a lot of time together. So it is nice for kids and parents and caregivers and other family members and people of the support system to also have that alone time, whether it's in their room or whether if the, if the actual weather allows to be outside, um, it is about balance. So alone time can be helpful for people and kids to work through their thoughts and their emotions and um, get a break and kind of reduce the stimulation that we get when we're all together in a room with electronics and the noise and the schooling and the TVs and all of that. Um, so it's about balance, but alone time can certainly be a good thing as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Ann Regan. She's a child psychologist at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. So I want to ask you about what point, at what point is professional intervention warranted? So if you have a child and they're admitting suicidal thoughts, or if they say they're struggling with depression, where and when can a parent turn for help? So again, as we talked about there, this process and this experience has definitely identified some of the cracks in the system and the vulnerabilities. Um, a lot of families um, and adolescent patients and younger patients have turned to going to pediatric emergency departments and emergency rooms. Um, those visits has increased. The American Academy of Pediatrics actually just put out um, some numbers and it's trends across the country as well as we've seen similar um, trends here locally. But um, although the overall number of visits may have decreased during especially the early time of the pandemic because people were trying to avoid health care centers and trying to not go to hospitals and all of that of the visits that did show up at the hospital there was an increase in that percentage that were related to mental health um, whether it had to do with suicidality and thoughts of self-harm or overall being overwhelmed um, and showing behaviors that parents just couldn't safely manage at home the the trend is that has increased um, during the pandemic so professional help is warranted when caregivers, parents, and support systems can't keep those kids safe, um, feel that physically they can't ensure their safety, they can't make the environment around them safe and protect them in that regard. 
And so then it's, it's a better idea to go to an environment and go to a place where, where it's created and it's meant to keep kids physically safe. So the Galasano um, Children's Hospital, the emergency department there is uh, equipped and ready uh, to help families in this situation, correct? Correct. The local hospital here, Galasano Children's, um, has that and there's systems in place directly starting with services in the emergency department, as well as increasing the level of service, whether an inpatient um, visit is needed and an admission or whether intensive outpatient um, services need to be set up as part of going home safely. There's a variety of different options that are available here locally um, and a number of different agencies as well. So again, the vulnerabilities that have been identified during this pandemic um, have shown the need for an increase in mental health services across ages, both adolescents as well as younger kids and, and family services um, and whether that looks like increasing access through telemedicine or coming to an office in a more traditional sense, um, it's going to look a little different, I think, moving forward. I've heard sociologists referring to today's teens as Generation Q, Q for quarantine. Do you think this experience is going to leave lasting scars on this generation? Um, I think scars is a tough word. I think lasting impressions and lasting experiences. Um, I, you know, everyone's going through this together. So it's not like just one group and one part of the country had this um, isolating experience. And so when we look to compare, um, you know, teens to their peer groups, everyone's gone through it. So although no one's experience is exactly the same, they certainly have um, each other to talk to and um, work through it together, which is different than, you know, compared to a trauma when not everybody's gone through that together. And so they don't have that peer group to talk to and work through it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure there'll be lots of studies in, you know, the future as well as longitudinal studies to kind of look at this. Uh, but again, when a whole cohort or a peer group has gone through similar things, then, you know, the way that we compare those experiences is a little different compared to an individual going through um, a situation or experience that not everybody has. We often think of children being resilient, but during this protracted time of crisis, I wonder how long we can expect that resilience to last. And I wonder if there are ways that a family can build or maintain resilience. So certainly like resilience, if you think about it as a quality, is you know a skill that you can build on. And so some people may be more resilient than others. It may come easier to someone compared to another. And so certainly a family system may have built some of those coping skills and may have, you know, added and contributed to their skill set to make them more resilient. Um, and so that's not necessarily something that just goes away. Um, it stays with them, and the next time they are faced with adversity, they can rely on that resiliency and those qualities um, to get through another difficult time. So the idea would be that they can certainly build upon um, this experience and, and focus on what they've done successfully to get through difficult times and use those um, skills again in the future. Thank you to child psychologist Ann Reagan from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poets often break down actions or emotions into smaller components so the listener or reader can really see or feel. I have two poets here to demonstrate how artful their ability is. First is Jerome Gagnon from Northern California, whose first prize-winning full collection of poetry, Rumors of Wisdom, appeared last year. Here is Invisible Ocean. It's sometime around 5 a.m. when I wake him for medicine and water. Each sip has become a struggle, confounded by almost constant thirst. Small sips, I say, to minimize choking. How could I have forgotten how essential it is to swallow? How we take the world in daily, 
and act as vital as breathing. How the world will swallow us whole and expel us into measurelessness. How water receives water, a process so pervasive it becomes almost invisible. Jasper Kennedy is a trans organizer and avid crocheter whose poem Starling's Law of the Heart reveals the miracle that is our heart muscles function. The heart is a machine in a circuit of vessels. Pump more out, more will return. Get back what you put in. Reap what you sow, as if anything works that way. It's a nice idea. I close my eyes and my fist is a ventricle that I tense and relax, systole and diastole in the palm of my hand. I pop up my thumb and audibly suck in air, extend my fingers like I'm holding a water balloon, filling with blood. Behind my eyelids, I see sparks as I clutch, current arcing at my wrist, and feel what it's like to hold the magnitude of what I've been served in the flat of my hand and dish it back out with a squeeze. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an update on colorectal cancer. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.